0: It began first service by letting everybody know how mad I am at my older brother. <laughs> because that kind of thing gets our attention, doesn't it? It's like, oh, pastor, what are you going to do? Going to drone on about your family deal for the last, next hour? No. <laughs> Actually, I, I'm anything but angry with my older brother. I love him very much. He's dear to me. Uh, and And to be honest, recently he was teaching at his church Uh, In Northern California, he took a playful shot at me, so this is my way of getting even. (laughs) So I can't wait to show it to him. But it does connect with what we're talking about this morning, because that sort of comment isn't something that's unusual or out of the ordinary within a family, is it? (laughs) And folks, let's be real about this. Uh, How many times has something like that been on your lips? Maybe even this morning, because things happen. We deal with, we are obstinate people at times, and we deal with obstinate people at times. And as we go along, we need to realize that as God calls us together as a church, as the church, that he calls us to be a family. I love the family aspect of what we share here. And I love you folks, and I pray that that when you walk through that door, that you sense the love. I hear over and over again from people, and it, it, it is a little heart wrenching when I, when I hear the opposite, which doesn't happen very often. But when I hear from people talking about, wow, I just can't believe the, the love that you have in this body, in this body of believers, uh, you actually, y'all <laughs> like hanging out together, <laughs> which is great. I mean, uh, because, Truth be told, we're a bunch of different people. We have different tastes, different personalities, different temperaments, different likes and dislikes, different characters. I mean, we're different. And yet, and yet, there's one thing that binds us together, and that's our love for the Lord Jesus. And that better be what binds us together, because barring that, we would be in a whole lot of trouble. Now it's true also that when somebody comes to the Lord that they don't show up at church for the first time or even years after that they are auto- automatically that they're all now all cleaned up and sparkly and do all the right things and say all the right things and and they've got it all down that is not real we're broken people we're sinful we're sinners utterly reliant upon the grace of God. But that doesn't mean that we use our sin or that our sin nature is a license to sin. Of course not. But what's really true is that when we come into the body of Christ, we understand that because of the work of the cross that we have placed our faith in now that we have been delivered from the penalty of sin. We also know that by the working of the Holy Spirit within the hearts of God's people, that we are delivered by the the work of the Spirit from the power of sin. We don't have to sin. Do we still sin? Yeah, we do. But that's because the presence of sin is something that God is dealing with in each of our lives, each of our hearts, each and every single day. We call that the process of sanctification. We are being sanctified. We are being, we are declared holy at the moment of our conversion, but now we are practically being made holy. We are practically being cleansed from the inside out. Changed doesn't happen overnight. So in the passage we're looking at this morning, Paul dives into some practical guidelines that govern us as a church family. These are family matters that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, and so, but understand we want to, obviously we want to be faithful to the, Mark, could you pass that around? I almost forgot. <clears throat> obviously we want to be faithful to the, the content and the context of the passage, So I want to back up a little bit and just remind you that the Apostle Paul, along with Timothy and Silas, had been traveling across the empire, and they'd gone to the city of Thessalonica, which is the capital city of Macedonia. As they began to evangelize that uh, mostly Gentile city, many people were embracing Christ and abandoning their former idolatrous ways. And remember, we've looked at that, they were into some real darkness, real darkness. And, and and so Paul here writing back to them, uh, he and his companions they'd only been there for a short time, so trouble came up. They had to leave, and Paul had uh, had invited Timothy look go back and care for that uh, those newly born Thessalonian Christians, and then come back and meet me in Corinth later on. And so here months later, Timothy had rejoined Paul at Corinth, and now he's informing him about the situation at Thessalonica. Paul, in turn, is now he's writing back to this church, and and that's what we're looking at, what we've been studying for these months in 1 Thessalonians. So in recent weeks, we've been looking at his instruction to them regarding the coming of Christ. Looked at that in two parts. First, we looked at the rapture of the church as Jesus comes for his bride, And that's that moment in time where those who have died will rise first. And then those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the air, in the atmosphere. And there we will always be with the Lord. We looked at that. We also looked at more recently the coming day of the Lord, that time when after the church has been taken out of here, the wrath of God will be poured out upon the earth and the inhabitants of it. We won't be here. I do not believe the Bible teaches that. So here in chapter 5, Paul, as what we looked at last week, he, he outlines two inescapable destinies. He says these will happen. You are either on one side of that equation or you are on the other. There is no middle ground. It's one or the other. Either you belong to Christ and you will be caught up to meet with him in the air, or you will have to be part of what happens after that when you come into judgment and the wrath of God is accomplishing your life. So he talks about the destinies there, the certainty that every single person will will experience one or the other. It, we looked at the, his use of the term we and us as opposed to they and them in this passage and the fact that we, the church, are not appointed to wrath. Thank God for that. So here, as Paul begins now to wrap up the first letter to the church, church at Thessalonica, he shifts to giving them a series of very practical exhortations in light of these events. How do we live as we wait for the Lord's return? Because he doesn't just throw us in a box marked heaven when we come to the Lord. There are things to do. There there are lives to be touched. There there is a transforming work that needs to take place in our lives and in our hearts as we are now part of this thing called the church, the ecclesia, which is the set-apart ones, the ones who as we gather week in and week out, and as we spend time with one another, as we build relationships together, how do we interact? I want you to remember here, too, as we look at this, that the church at Thessalonica was the very first church in Macedonia, which was a region, a province of uh, of the Roman Empire, northern Greece, roughly. It was also the second church in all of Europe, the first church being Philippi, where Paul and Silas and Timothy had just been, when they arrived at Thessalonica, still probably had welts all over their bodies, Paul and Silas, because they had been beaten severely there. And so, by the inspiration of the Spirit, and through the work that Paul and the others were doing, these people are kind of figuring it out as they go. This is new stuff for them. So, there were some adjustments that needed to be made, (laughs) and they endeavored. Now, to stand together, uh, remember, as they stood against they they went, they were under harsh persecution, many were suffering, and so now what they 're trying to do is they 're coming together as a body, and Paul is giving them instruction because they 're often standing in the midst of a world that was hostile against them, and you can only think because he talks about them being a model church, and that as the church there grew that they were having influence on the region around them. You can, you have to understand that the opposition grew exponentially with it. So they're going through it. They're going through tough stuff. And as in any family, likely there were some among them who were not perhaps as willing as others to go with the flow. It's just the way that people are. There are also those who struggled and some with uh, circumstances in their lives, or they struggled against authority, or because of lingering worldly habits, behaviors that they possess. And so what Paul is doing is he's addressing these people. Uh, and I want to talk about, this is how this section breaks down, and I want you to understand that as we look at this, and as we go through this section this morning, it's all about relating to one another, and it's about relationships in general. Uh, verses 12 and 13 speak of relationships in the church and how a church family should relate to their leaders. Verses 14 and 15 speak of how the church, how we as a family should relate to one another. And verses 16 through 18 talk about how the church should relate to the Lord. So let's begin in verse 12 here. Let's look at verses 12 and 13, and then we'll come back and talk about it. He says, and we urge you, brethren to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. So notice in verse 12, he says, I urge you to recognize those who labor uh, among you, who are over you in the Lord. Uh, This is an interesting word. He's not commanding them. The King James renders this word beseech and that word beseech literally means, I appeal to you. He's not he's not being heavy-handed with them here at all. And I believe that's intentional. In Philemon, the book of Philemon, verses 8 and 9, Paul, he is asserting his authority there with Philemon. But as a leader, we see his heart as he appeals to Philemon in love. In in Philemon, verse 8, he says, Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, he says, I have the authority to do that, Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, same word that he uses here, being such a one as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So he's not demanding. He's not commanding them. He's appealing to them. He's beseeching them in love, saying, look, this is the attitude I want you to have. As a leader, he's setting the example because the church isn't a dictatorship and nor will it ever be. I mean there are some that are heavy-handed. There are legalistic churches out there that that get very heavy-handed and put all kinds of burdens on people. It's just not how the Bible presents the church in its operation. The other thing I want to mention here is the church is <laughs> neither is the church a democracy. Uh I you hear about churches that have a democratic rule and in my opinion and I believe it's a biblically solid one When we import the world's practices into the church and make that part of our faith and practice, it's wrong. The reason is we don't have a congregational vote here. And it's not because we don't love you or value you or any of that. It's because we're not going to run our church based on what the the majority says. We want to have godly people making godly decisions. And if we were open to doing a congregational vote, Think about it. You've got unbelievers walking through that door who now have a say in matters of faith and practice. That's not biblical. That's opening the church up to all kinds of crazy things. And then you have the haves and the have-nots and the whole thing. It just gets into, it's, it's, it's a very messy form of church leadership. So at the end of the day, we got to realize that the church is a theocracy and God clearly raises up positional authority within the church. So what do you mean positional authority? Well, let's say you're driving down the road and you look in your rear view mirror and you see a blue light <laughs> and that gets your attention, doesn't it? Uh I don't know about you. When I see <laughs> my foot immediately comes off the gas pedal, but so you see a blue light in the rear view mirror and you pull over because that's what you do when you have a blue light behind you and you look and you're looking at this guy getting out of the car and let's say he gets out, he's got a pair of cowboy boots and some Levi's and a t-shirt, wearing a ball cap backwards, you know, and and he comes striding up to your car, and he says, can I see your license and registration? You're going to be looking at him and going, uh, who are you? <laughs> <What> are you? <laughs> and why do you have a blue light on your car? However, if that guy gets out of the car, and you see a uniform, and you see a badge, and especially if you see a gun, <laughs> you're going to understand... That that man represents the power of the police force behind him. That's positional authority. That's what it is that God, and he, it's not like he raises up cops in the body. Don't get me wrong. Don't take that too far. But as an example, that's what positional authority looks like. He's just a guy. Like any other guy. And yet, he has, he has, he holds a position to where he has authority that's been delegated to him by the, the government in that case. In the case of the church, authority has been delegated by God. Uh, we'll look at that more too as we go along. So, a couple of things about this: in the world, you see that the world runs on what I call power authority. Understand that it's the and that's the notion that you know if you want to keep your job, do what I tell you. If you want to make more money, work harder. If you want to climb the ladder, be better than everybody else. We all know what that looks like. That's not how kingdom authority works. Kingdom authority, on the other hand, is about going low. It's not about climbing a ladder. It's not about being more important. It's not about being, you know, yeah, we want to excel in in whatever ministry God gives us. But it's about going low. Kingdom authority runs not on power authority, but on servant authority. Jesus says, if you want to be the greatest in God's kingdom, you better be the servant of all. We run, and the, the, the principles that run the, the church are the polar opposite of the principles that run the world. And again, kind of sickening, when I see a church adopt sort of a corporate structure where you have a top-down structure, like the c e o and then all of that, when truly what the Bible presents is that it's an upside down pyramid, you have the the pastor he better be at the bottom, and that, as he has been given delegated authority by God that he 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 rules in that sense that that he is looking out for other people, and we'll look about that more as we get further down the road here this morning. The point in this is the effectiveness of anybody in a position of leadership in the church is directly related to their relationship with Christ. Let me explain. Matthew chapter 8, verses uh, 5 through 10, uh, we see the story here of Jesus with the centurion. He says, now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I'll come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. Excuse me. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes and to another, come. And he comes and to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. Now, this is one of only two places in all of the New Testament where Jesus marvels. And he marveled when this guy said this because he understood that this guy understood some things about the kingdom and about authority structures in the kingdom. So as he marveled, he said to those who followed, assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. So what the centurion is saying, he's saying, look, I give orders to one and I say, go and he goes and another come and he comes. And the reason they do this is I'm a man under authority. In other words, Caesar and all of Rome stand behind me as a centurion when I give orders to my soldiers. Delegated authority, positional authority. So, but he's essentially telling Jesus, is saying, look, Lord, when I look at your life, it's evident to me, and I believe that there is an entire unseen kingdom that stands behind you also. Therefore, you don't have to come to my house. All you have to do is speak the word because he understood that there was a whole kingdom represented in Jesus as he stood there before him. And he he connected the dots in that sense. Jesus is impressed with this guy. Here's the principle. The effectiveness of leaders in the church is directly related to the throne that they bow the knee to. Say it again. The effectiveness of leaders in the church is directly related to the throne that that leader bows the knee to. That's why if, if you are ever in a church or in a fellowship where that is not taking place, one word comes to mind. Run. You've got to be connected to, to, to in a church where, where Jesus, I'll tell you what guys, I'm an under shepherd. I am not the end of the line. I'm a man under authority. And I get that. I serve the great shepherd, the arch poyman. The word shepherd is Poiman, and the great shepherd, arch is is how it's rendered in the New Testament. And we have to understand that there are authority structures in the church that God has established, and it's very clear that I'm not the end of it. We'll talk about that more too as we go, but truly, He is the one that we bow the knee to. He is the one that I feel Very strongly accountable too. You know, He the the Bible says, let not many among you become teachers for they shall incur a stricter judgment. Now we could debate back and forth. Is that a stricter judgment by God or a stricter judgment by man? I think multiply. (laughs) So the answer to that is, yeah, it's sobering either way. The other thing about this is that if a leader is doing it properly, he doesn't have to go around trying to get people to follow him. Because, you know, in Romans chapter 12, in verse 8, it tells us that effective leadership is a spiritual gift. It's a gift of the Spirit. It's not some talent or skill. It's a it's a spiritual gift. It's motivated by the Holy Spirit himself. And so God is working both in the leader as well as those he leads or she leads. It's very important that we understand that that's how it works. That's how the Bible presents leadership. So he says here in verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. Now, I believe probably in context in, in Thessalonica, there were probably some people that were pushing against the leadership that God had raised up. Perhaps it was even Timothy. He came back to, man, some of those guys were honoring Paul, you know, I had to deal with it. And we don't know, but Paul here, he's admonishing them he's saying, look, you need to be at peace as you work this out. Why? Because if you're going to be warring with each other, what does that do to your witness, to the community that you're in? Oh, my goodness. I believe that there are three necessary components in achieving peace within the church. I'll go through them quickly here. The first is when the people in the church are loving their leaders. And, and folks, I think that effective leadership inspires love and 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 uh, transparency. With the people that, that we're leading. I mean, that's just the church. And if you, if you're not in a place where you can hang with a leader, then, you know, we're not trying to force people to stay here. We're not trying to force people to, you know, get on board or else. You know, submission in the body of Christ is always voluntary. It's never mandatory. It's never a have to. It's I want to. I want to be here. So the people in the church are loving their leaders and the leaders in the church are loving their people. And that should be evident. And we'll talk about what that looks like too as we go along. The third one here is when the leaders in the church are loving one another. I'm blessed. You know, we have loving guys that I know have my back. They know I have theirs. Uh, I, I, I truly love our elders. And, and, Folks, nobody. I, I came from a church in California that I was in for many, many years, and uh, still very close. It's kind of a home away from home. Uh, that uh, whenever I go back, because you know, my son is still, he's on the board there. My brother's one of the teachers, as I mentioned, <laughs> and you know, another one of my boys is assistant pastor, and, and I'm just very connected with the people in that church. But all of the years that I was in leadership, and I started in leadership there in in the, the late 1980s, and all of the years I was there, we never, ever had a falling out among the leadership. We Because why? Because we loved each other. Because we understood spiritual authority. Because we understood leadership. We supported our pastor. We know that he loved us. We know that he supported us. And we went with the vision that God had given him. There was never any jockeying for position or or let me up you or, or let me go around and talk badly about you behind you. None of that was happening because the leadership loved one another. And folks, very often when churches split, it's because the leadership doesn't love one another. Churches split from the top down very often. I'm blessed. We're surrounded with people that get spiritual leadership in this church. The other thing about that is when all of those things are in place, loving their leaders, the leaders loving their people, leadership loving one another, there will be peace within the church. Now that doesn't mean that it's not hard sometimes. I like to tell people that I get tired in the ministry, but I've never been tired of the ministry. I mean, because it's hard work sometimes. So is any other thing that you do. But it's a labor of love. Where things tend to get a bit messy is when any of these three are out of sync. That's why it's so important for us to keep short accounts. We'll talk about having grace, an abundance of grace for one another as we wrap up in a little bit. Uh, Gotta have short accounts with one another. Verse 14, he says, now we exhort you. That's a stronger word than urge, (laughs) for sure. Exhort means, I strongly encourage you, like you, this is, listen up here. (laughs) I exhort you, brethren, warn or admonish those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. So Paul's exhortations continue here as he now addresses family matters between one another in the church. So when he speaks of warning those who are unruly, that's an interesting word. It's actually a military term that's used for when somebody steps out of rank or when somebody goes AWOL. That's where we get the term out of line. Hey, buddy, you're out of line. So what he's saying is when people get out of line in the church, admonish them. And, and folks, that's sometimes not a pleasant thing. And where I draw the line truly is I want to just have an abundance of grace. Where I draw the line as a pastor is if someone's being injured either if they're being injured physically, of course, obviously, uh, but if they're being injured emotionally, or if they're being injured spiritually, that's when I step in. Uh i laughingly say sometimes, yeah, I have a staff. Shepherds have staffs, but I keep it locked in the closet, and I will haul it out if I need to, but that's not my default position. I'm not running around beating people up. But I love you guys, and I, I want to protect the body because shepherds both feed and protect. Moving on here talking about being faint-hearted. Have you ever been faint-hearted? I have, (laughs) recently. (laughs) It's a person that's wrestling. It's a a guy or or a woman who essentially says, Lord, if you don't hold me up, I'm down. Lord, I, I am wrestling with this thing, and it seems so much bigger than my ability to wrestle it out. Uh, And and, and again, I've been and and I've also seen people who are strong believers, strong in the faith. When a particular trial or challenge comes their way, they wrestle. And very often, that's where God does some of his best work is when we're wrestling it out. When we're faint-hearted, where we're going, I don't know how you're going to pull this off. I don't don't know how you're going to come through. And I'm just, I'm hanging on, Lord, you know. (laughs) <laughs> I have a Pastor friend, that would say, "Lord, put cotton in your ears, because I'm coming kicking and screaming." <laughs> and, and there are those times where you just kind of have that that thing. It's like I'm really doing my best to just hang on, persevere through this. The faint-hearted are those who are being stretched. All of us have been in that place. If we haven't been, we will be likely. And and folks, the last thing we want to do when we're dealing with people that are faint-hearted is to become critical of them. Because it might seem easy to me, that thing that that person's dealing with. My pastor used to tell me all the time, John, you got it, you cannot start being the arbiter of what constitutes a trial in people's lives if you're going to shepherd the flock you got to understand that for one person, a trial is a broken fingernail, and the next person, it might be the loss of a loved one. You don't get to decide. And that's good advice. The last thing we want to do is become critical. Ah, oh, they should have that ace. That, I've been through that. That's nothing. No, that's not it. The other, <laughs> the other part about that, if it's us in that place, the last thing we want to deal with is people who become critical of us. And, and I wanted to say straight up, folks, Because we are all in process, we don't shoot the wounded around here, nor will we. We've got to understand, we've got to have room for people to be people, for people to be wrestling, for people to be uh, just trying to get it worked out. Rather, what he says here is be the one that brings understanding, that brings comfort to that person. That's what they need in that moment. You know, you're going to pull through, encouragement, uh, a kind word. Going on, along here, moving on here, he says to uphold the weak. Now, that might be a, a reference to a physical weakness. It could be that. I don't think it's dictated by the, the, the context of the passage here. I believe it refers to a weakness in one's spiritual life uh, as, he, as he's laying this out. Now, remember, in the case of the Thessalonians, they had wondered and they were anxious about their departed loved ones. Remember, we looked at that in the last chapter. He said, look, don't worry about them. God has this covered. And I believe that they were weak in that. they were trying to wrestle it out. And what characterizes a person like this would be that they're often insecure or they're unsteady in their walk. Questions come up. Uh, and over the years, I've dealt with people that They'll come and say, Pastor, am I really saved? You know, uh, d- does God really love me? Uh, how can I know I'm really forgiven? I know what my past, I know what I've done. And I don't know. I mean, it seems like a tall order for him to forgive me for that. Those questions come up, don't they? What It's what happens when we're weak in the faith, when we're struggling spiritually. Doubts come in. People wrestle. And they go back and forth, carry it with them. They struggle a lot, and it's a. Sometimes people just have a tough, tough time dealing with these things. Again, and, and you know something too, I I think is true, is one of Satan's favorite ploys is he he has a tendency to hit us on our bruises. Do you ever you ever have a big bruise or a sore spot, and you hit that thing, and it's like, oh man, that smarts the enemy is really good he'll take an area where we're weak and hit us at that place and, and and his lies come and they begin those 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 perhaps those doubts begin to compound and and you begin to wonder and, and you're really wrestling out now and, and and folks when you see that with somebody else i want to tell you be sensitive to the leading of god's spirit in this and i want to say up front There is absolutely a place and a time for doctrine. We should understand good doctrine. We should understand Christian doctrine. We should study God's word and we should know it well. However, chances are good that the person that is weak in the faith, that they don't need to be confronted about their weakness with a doctrinal dissertation. That's not what's going to get it for them. Mainly what someone needs in that moment is they just need a friend. They need somebody who will listen to them. They need somebody that will say, well, talk with me about it. They don't need a critical heart. They don't need somebody that's going to you know, imply, oh, look how, you know, what a lousy Christian you are because you're wrestling or you're weak. No, they need somebody that's going to bring them comfort and encouragement. And sometimes from the scripture, I'm not saying that we don't. I'm saying that we don't hit people with the scripture on the front end when they need a friend. And we may bring encouragement, bring an encouraging word. I'm not saying we don't use it. But there's a place and there's a balance to be had in that. He says here also to be patient with all, because I'll tell you what, this is what true Christianity looks like. It's when we have the ability to love uh, and to help difficult people, just like you and just like me. When we have that ability, when we are walking in that ability, when when we are, are understanding that we're all in this together, and and that that there's not a pecking order there's not uh, uh the you know i used to as the inner christian I would, I would talk about people who are self appointed super saints <laughs> we're not doing that here we're just we're just wanting to spend time together to love one another to to do life together and to see what God wants to show us together that's when christianity clicks that's when we understand that we are weak and fallible, sinful people that are utterly reliant upon the grace of God as we walk. The point in this is if you're looking only for perfect people to minister to or to minister with, you're going to have a really, really small group of people <laughs> like nobody, if you're being honest. Verse 15, he says, see to it that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Now, remember, as I mentioned, the Thessalonians, they're being pushed around a lot. And so Paul's giving them critical instruction here on how to deal with that. The word render here in verse 15, it's actually, it's an accounting term. And it means, it's like if I'm standing at a cash register and I've just paid yeah you know, the checker my for my groceries you know I give a couple of twenties or whatever it is, and they're rendering change, they're going to pay me back what is due in that moment for for my groceries and in context here, what Paul is saying is don't even think about paying somebody back. don't render evil for evil if somebody has treated you poorly if they've done something wrong and wronged you in some way, it's not up to you to make the account even on that. He said, don't do it. That's a slippery slope because then guess who's in sin? Yeah. And I, again, I just got to be honest with you. I wrestle with this. I do at times. You know, I don't like it when people tailgate. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I want to show them. Think about it. Somebody pushes you. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? I'm going to push them back. Yeah. We'll look at how we deal with that in a few minutes. I'll come back to that. I'm going to let that hang for the moment. Verse 16, he says, "Rejoice always." Now, by the way, this is the shortest verse in all of the New Testament. That's right. First Thessalonians 5:16. And you're probably thinking, if you're a Bible person, you're thinking, "Oh no, 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 it's in, it's in, <laughs> it's in John chapter 11, where where it says Jesus wept." No, it's not. It, it, now that's the, that's the shortest verse in the Bible in English. The shortest verse in the Bible in Koine Greek is here. It's shorter. So, what's the benefit in knowing this? Not a thing. <laughs> Not a thing. I just wanted to bless your heart with some Bible trivia in the middle of a serious talk. So, but that's true. Uh, it, it is actually a shorter verse than Jesus wept. When he says rejoice always. So I was looking at this and I started thinking about there's an, uh, an old, it's a kid's praise song, uh, that has the lyrics, uh, joy is the flag flown high from the castle of my heart. Uh, and it, you know, it that repeats several, I, I hear it in my mind. I want to sing it, but you didn't but. It says, joy is the flag flown high from the castle of my heart when the king is in residence there. And for years I would think, that's kind of a goofy song. Well, it's probably not goofy to the kids. They don't, they're not connected other than it's fun to sing. But so what does that mean? And truly what it refers to is in ancient times when a king was there at his castle or a citadel or wherever his residence was that when the king was in residence there, the flag would be up. It would be flying, and you could know if you're walking by the castle, the king's home. If there's no flag, no king, all right? I mean, that was just the rule back then. So as we look at this, notice he doesn't say, be happy always, because joy and rejoicing are a very different experience than happy. (laughs) <laughs> Folks, you've got to understand that. The Bible tells us the joy of the Lord is my strength. It's not being happy is my strength, because happy is effectively communicated to me through my circumstances. Joy, on the other hand, is much deeper communicated to me by the Holy Spirit. That's why the fruit of the Spirit is love. And I believe that those that ninefold fruit of the Spirit there in Galatians chapter 5 is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control... Yeah, I memorized those in Bible school. But the point is, is that it's love manifesting as joy. Love manifesting as peace. Love manifesting as patience. Do you understand? Because it's the love of God that's been shed abroad in my heart. This is what counts. And that's His love in manifesting in different ways in my life. Here, He says, rejoice always. He didn't say be happy always. So I can be in tough. Tough circumstances. I, I mean, I, I, I can be going through painful times, hard times. When I begin to think about and realize in the midst of that, that Jesus died for me, that Jesus loves me, that one day soon he's going to take me home to be with him forever and I will not have to worry about all of this. Until then, he's given me his spirit, the Holy Spirit of God living within me, guiding the course of my life. All of that while I'm here. All of that brings immeasurable joy in my life. I can rejoice always because regardless of my circumstances, even when and especially when it's tough, because the King is in residence here. That's why he says rejoice always. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Now, that's an interesting phrase because in the original, again, the, the pray without, the without ceasing part, it means to pray chronically. This is pray like you have a bad cough. Have you ever had a cough? It's like every time you try to get a breath, it's <laughs> okay, Lord, I'm just going to pray to you right now. And I'm not saying that you hack your way through your prayers. That's not it. But what he's saying is that you need to have an attitude of prayer in your life to where that's what your default position is. You just pray. Lord, I don't like the way I behave towards my wife this morning. I pray. Lord, I don't like what happened over here. I pray. Lord, I want you to empower me to do this over there. I pray. Lord, I'm worried about my older brother because now he's going to think I'm mad at him. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm not going to pray about that because he'll know. But the point is, is that it's an attitude of our heart. It's an attitude of prayer. So he says in verse 18, he says, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So First of all, if you're a person who is searching out God's will for your life, here it is. (laughs) The things we're looking at this morning should keep you busy while you work the rest of it out. Notice he says, in everything, and this is important. He, He says, in everything, give thanks. He doesn't say, for everything, give thanks. That would be unreasonable. You know, sometimes life is just plain hard, isn't it? Sometimes we go through tough stuff. Sometimes there's pain or hardship. There's tears, there's grief, there's disease. A whole plethora of things that we go through. And I'm not rejoicing about that. You don't thank God for being sick, but you can thank God in your illness because you have what unbelievers don't have. You have hope. You lose a loved one. You don't thank God for losing them. That's ridiculous. However, if they knew Jesus, you can thank God, you can be thankful in losing them because you know that now they're at home with the Lord. You see, he's not saying thank God for everything, but thank God in everything. So as Paul brings these three things together, rejoicing and praying and being thankful, he he says that that's God's will in Christ Jesus concerning you. So when we talk about family matters, family matters in the church, what are we talking about? We're talking about relationships that, that we have as a church with the leaders in the church. We're talking about the relationships we have with one another and the relationships that we have with the Lord. And I'll tell you what, folks, I cannot tell you what a blessing it is to shepherd this little flock and to know that we're a bunch of people who are a community of believers whose heartfelt desire is to not just get along together, but we actually want to thrive together as a body. I look out here, and I'll tell you what, I, I see how people love to hang out after the service, and the reason for that is we just kind of like being around each other. That's because of the love of God being poured out in our fellowship. It is, and that's by design. That is that is something that God intends for a healthy church. It is something that blesses my heart immeasurably to see when we are loving each other the way that he outlines here. So as we wrap up, I want to look at a few things uh, as we apply this. And, And I want to just tag some things here that we see in this passage. And the first one is this. Pour grace, not gas on that fire. Pour grace, not gas, on that fire. Now, Hebrews chapter 12 gives us some great instruction, tells us in verse 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Whose holiness is it? It's his. He gives it to us. That's what being sanctified is about. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. As we relate to one another, that has to be in place. He says, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Folks, when a church begins to get off the rails, it's because this isn't happening. I'll tell you what, something that's a destroyer of fellowship is gossip. And if you are of a mind to start looking for problems, guess what, you're going to find them. If you want to find fallible people, guess what, you're in a whole room full of them. If you want to find things to gripe about, you're going to have a full list. But you get to choose you Are going to pour grace or are going to pour gas on that fire? What's true is if you and I hang out together long enough, I'm going to probably get to know the areas where you perhaps struggle or are weak or where you wrestle. But something interesting about that is you'll, you're going to probably likely anyway see ways that I struggle, ways that I'm weak, things that I wrestle with. Because we're in this together. Here's the difference: the world looks at these things; they look at uh, this, the imperfections and the things that we wrestle with. They look at that and they say, "Look, there's a person who's flawed. Look at their flaws." God looks at the same things, he sees a person who's worthy of His love, he sees a person that He's pouring His grace out on. He sees a person who is in the process of being conformed to the image of his son. We can look at it both ways. One of them is God's will. One of them clearly isn't. We choose. Poor grace, not gas. In practical terms, all of us want the grace of God to apply to us, don't we? We know the areas where we fail. We know our shortcomings. We know the areas where God has still got a lot of work to do. I sure know mine. Got to understand that in wanting God's grace in my life, I've got to be of a mind to extend that same grace to others. That's how the body works. It doesn't work because we've got it all together, gang. We're all in process. It works because we have grace. Understanding first the grace of God that's been poured out on me and then pouring that out amongst ourselves with one another. Next thing I want to look at is destroy your enemy. Or at least try. (laughs) So, Here's the deal, how to deal with when you're faced with a relationship that's gone south, that's gone sour. Or you're dealing with a co-worker that doesn't seem to understand what the word nice means. <laughs> or that person in church who, it seems outwardly at least, uh, that, that, that person snubbed you. Romans chapter 12, verses 18 to 21. Say this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And then Paul quotes Proverbs 25 here. He says, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now couple of different ways to look at that. I've heard it taught a couple of different... I've taught it a couple of different ways over the years. One is that in ancient times, they didn't have like Bic lighters and they ran around saying, hey, let me help you with your fire. No, they had to keep the fire going. They had to keep the coals going. And they had this like this clay vessel thing that they would stick on their head and it had a little channel in it to put the coals if you transfer your fire to somebody else. So you can look at it as this person's being hospitable that somebody's being mean to them, and they're heaping burning coals on their head. Yeah, you could look at that that way, but I really believe the other way that you can look at this, and I believe it follows the context a whole lot better, is if you are treating someone kindly who is treating you badly, that you are putting the weight of conviction on their head for the things that they're doing, and that there is a weight of conviction that happens. I don't know how many times you are talk to somebody that you point something out and they're like, because they don't like what you said. He's, he says, look, be kind. Heat burning coals on that person's head. Either way, he says in verse 21, in, in there in Romans 12, he says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So essentially what's being said here is if I'm dealing with someone who to one degree or another is my enemy, The way to resolve that is to destroy that enemy. How do you destroy that enemy? You make that enemy your friend. Now you might be thinking too, okay, well, Pastor John, you don't know that person like I do. (laughs) They ain't going to be my friend anytime soon. That might be true. However, Paul is clear here in verse 18 of Romans 12. He says, as far as it depends on you, pursue peace with all men. Here in 1 Thessalonians, he says, pursue what is good for you and for them. He's saying, look, don't worry about them. Worry about you. Uh, He's saying, that's the attitude of the heart that you need to have. You can remove that person from enemy status in your own heart and mind, whether or not they actually succeed or you actually succeed in making that person your friend. That doesn't change the fact that that's the attitude of the heart you need to have in dealing with difficult, obstinate or unlovable people. That's what he says here. So how do you deal with somebody that that has kind of got enemy status in your mind? You destroy that enemy. You destroy that enemy by at least making overtures by making that person your friend. That's how it works. Something that's interesting about this, uh, I was thinking about this, and, and I don't know if it's still the case. Do they still have like 10 most wanted in the post office? I used to think, I had this mental thing, because I've had people that have done me really wrong in my life. I mean, I, I was betrayed by a guy that worked for me one time, cost me like $130,000, and then he came walking into my business one day, and I walked up to him, and I hugged him and told him I loved him, and it was it totally blew him away. It blew me away too, because that wasn't the response I thought I'd have. That was the Lord. My point is, is that, You know, this guy, he had been on the post office wall in my mind, in my heart. It's like, yeah, you know, I just think about the guy and I would just, it would just like. And I realized, I got so convicted about that as as I was feeling so bitter towards him. And the Lord essentially said, you need you need to take him down off the wall (laughs) there. Whether or not you're ever friends with him again, and I wasn't, but I was at least able to love the man. That's not something that we can produce in ourselves. Left to myself, I'm an ornery, grouchy person. But that's something that God can produce in me and through me as I deal with other people who are difficult. Leave room for the grace of God. Destroy your enemy, or at least try. Thirdly, final thing I want to look at here, is power authority or servant authority. Now, it's true that all of us, every single one of us, are leaders in one fashion or another, whether it's being the leader in the church or it's being a mom or it's being a husband or it's being a manager at work or whatever it is. All of us lead in some way. Power authority uh, looks for what's in it for me. Servant authority looks for what's in it for you. We choose. Power authority comes from me being the top dog. Servant authority is derived from bowing the knee to one's Lord and Master. Again, I, I love that as we follow the Lord, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And, and what he's saying is, is, I'm not the top dog here. Even the great apostle, Capel A apostle Paul, understood where he was in the order of things. He understood servant authority. Jesus gives us a perfect example of servant authority in John chapter 13. One of my absolute favorite passages. I believe it should be leadership 101 for anybody aspiring to a position of leadership in any endeavor. There, Jesus, the night before, he knew that by the next day at that time, he would have been to the cross and in the tomb. This is after the last supper. He's there in the upper room with his men and he stops at one point. And he puts, he wraps an, an apron around himself and he gets down on his hands and knees, grabs a bowl of water and begins to wash every one of the 12, including Judas, feet. And he does that. He gets I love the, the interaction he has with Peter in that. You know, Peter says, oh, yeah, no, you can't do that. And, and Jesus says, well, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. And so Peter says, oh, then wash all of me. does. Well, hold me down then, Jesus, you know. And, and Jesus says, no, you only need to have your feet washed. Um, And so he goes through and he does that. But what's really interesting is what Jesus tells them afterwards. He says, look, a servant, underscore servant, is not greater than his master, is he? Ask the rhetorical question. Neither are you greater than me, is what he's saying. And I've done this as an example for you. This is how he knew that these would be the same men that would be sent out, commissioned to go and to plant the church of God. That they would be the ones that would go out after he resurrected and and ascended into heaven, that they would be tasked with carrying the gospel forward from there. And he says, this is how I want you to lead. I want you to go low. I want you to understand this principle because if you don't, you're going to be leading like the world does, and the, the, the world doesn't lead well. So servant authority, not power authority. Folks, with that in mind, let's look at others here in the family of God that he has called us to be a part of, and let's assign great value to them. He says, look, esteem one another as more important than yourselves. That's a function of servanthood. That's a function of going low. Let's pursue beneficial things on behalf of those who are wrestling. Let's come alongside, not with a critical heart, but with a heart of encouragement, consolation, whatever they're going through. Let's speak truth to one another in love. Let's surround fragile, weak people and encourage them, hold them up. That's how we get along in the body of Christ. That's the instruction from God's word that I truly believe he wants us to have, because as we do this, the church functions as she was designed to function. When we begin importing all kinds of worldly garbage into this whole thing, we're going to have a mess. Uh, And I like to tell people, not on my watch. I I have no interest in running this thing like a corporation. I have no interest in running this thing uh, with power, authority. I want for us to just simply seek the Lord together and see what he wants to do among us. What a blessing you guys are to me in this. And as we walk together, we walk in the realization that sooner or later, soon enough, I hope very soon, together, we're going to go to the other side. That's exciting to think about. That's exciting to entertain. That's exciting to hold on to. Father, oh, you say rejoice always, and I just rejoice. We rejoice together in you, Lord, that that you have called us to be a part of this little church and, and this little community, and and Lord, I love that that the church that got the the big report card, the great report card in the book of Revelation, was the little one. You said you have a little power. You've kept my word. You're doing what I've called you to do. And let us be that church, Lord. We're all flawed. We're all goofed up in different ways, and yet. We love you. We want to be a light in this community for you. We want to be able to carry the torch of Christ to people that are hurting, people that are lost, not just in our fellowship, but out there. So Lord, work in us. Equip us, anoint us for the task at hand because the laborers are few. Lord, let us be those ones, those lights in a dark and darkening world. Thank you, God. Thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for each one here and pray that as we walk forward, that we would simply walk forward in love, loving one another, loving you. In Jesus' name, amen.